I think one of the things that um, we value as a culture, and probably most places in the world, is authenticity. But that seems to be kind of a big buzzword in our our culture in particular. Uh, we like things that are authentic. For example, uh, you don't want to go to New York City and buy a Rolex off the street. You'd rather have the real Rolex, right? Uh, of course, most people can't afford a $20,000 watch. But, uh, you know, if you had to choose between those two, you want the authentic, you want the real Rolex. It's going to last you. Um, it, <laughs> Some of you know this story. Uh, Eric Frazier loves Liverpool. This poor guy. But anyway, he loves Liverpool. It's a European soccer team. And his, so his mom, for Christmas, ordered him a Liverpool jersey. And normally these are like 85 to to $100. But she found one from South Korea that was you know, a knockoff version. So she, she orders this Liverpool jersey in a large. Because you know, Eric's a built guy and, and has his name put on the back. And so the shirt shows up. And he can't even fit in this shirt. Like a large, apparently, in South Korea knockoff jerseys is about barely fitting Emily. And it says, instead of Fraser, it says Freighter on the back. All right? So uh, we, that, that's why you pay a little more for the authentic thing. But I think to drive my point home, uh, I'd like to ask for, for two volunteers. I have two volunteers. Come on up. All right. Um, let's see. Just two. Come on up, Tommy. Yeah. One more person. One more person. I'm going to, oh, Paige, this is going to pay off for you. This is going to pay off for you. All right. Sorry, Tommy. I'd love to roast you. Um, okay, so I'd like you to open these envelopes and tell everyone what's inside. Do I show it? Yeah. What do you have there? $5 in Monopoly money. Okay, and what do you have, Paige? I have a $5 bill. Happy Real birthday. Happy, happy birthday. So what would you rather have? The authentic or? This one. Yeah. Value? Yeah, you can keep that. I actually want that back for my game, but sorry, Tommy. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah. We want the authentic. We want the real thing. And I can't think of an, an arena in our lives where authenticity matters more than relationships. Because any time that we are in a relationship with someone else, we want to... We want to believe that they are who they say they are. We want to, to be able to trust other people. We want that person to act with integrity of being who they say they are. There's a bit of a problem, though, when we talk about authenticity in our culture. Because I think one of the things that all this talk about being authentic does um, is it can open the door to just saying, Hey, I'm, authentic, I'm authentically a jerk, and I'm just going to keep being a jerk. Uh, you know? and, and so authenticity sometimes gives us license to just do whatever we want or be whatever we want without any kind of consequence. You can't say anything bad about how I'm acting because I'm just being me. And that's the cool thing to be, right? Uh, so let's say I'm authentically a driven, competitive, cold-hearted person. I go on Donald Trump's uh, apprentice show, and I backstab my way to the top so that, of course, everyone can give to my charity. Let's call it the, uh, uh, the Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good, read good a la Zoolander or something like that. But basically, in that setting, you get praised for being a complete backstabbing jerk, right? Uh, that, that would be authentic. Or let's say I'm authentically drawn to being selfish. Uh, is that license then for me to indulge myself at the expense of my family or my, my society by overusing everyone's resources or whatnot? As a disciple of Jesus, I believe that human beings, every one of us, is made in the image of God. You've heard me say that over and over again. I think that's the place we always need to start. That you and I and everyone is made in the image of God. And because we're infected by sin, that image of God that I bear and that you bear is cracked, it's broken. 
But I think when we talk about being authentically human, that would mean to be human in the fullest sense of the word, human as God made us and intended us to be before being cracked and broken. So as we enter into tonight's passage, I want to ask us this question. What would living authentically as someone made in God's image look like? What would living authentically as someone made in God's image look like? I want to encourage you to stand as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. And I'm also going to read verse 14 because it's super important to what's going on. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, speaking of Jesus, as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all, and warned them not to tell who he was. Now, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Father God, thank you for drawing us together to worship this evening. Thank you for giving us your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come upon us, uh, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what it is you want to communicate. Not only in our heads, but in our hearts. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change us. That you would break down the walls that uh, are in our hearts that separate us from the living God. Shape us more into the image of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So I just asked this a question. What would living authentically as someone made in the image of God look like? What would that look like? As we work through this passage, what I'm suggesting is that Jesus is the most authentic human being to ever lived. He is the most He is what we were made to be like, unbroken if you didn't have any sin in your life. Let's take a look. So previously, uh, last week, Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of his day because of his teachings about the Sabbath. The leaders were so furious with him that they began to conspire about how they might kill him. So Jesus withdrew from there and many people were following behind him. Uh, he was healing them and he was also warning these people not to tell who he was. Now, those are just two short verses, verses 15 through 17. And you might just want to read over them uh, and just keep on going without even giving them a second thought. Because in other places in Matthew's Gospel, we've already seen him heal people in much more detail. And we've already seen him do this thing where he, he tells certain people not to tell who he is. So anyway, it's redundant, right, Matthew? But I think that these two verses really tell us a lot. We're shifting now from looking not so much at what Jesus did, but the way he did it. 
Not so much exactly the details of what he did, but his stance, the way he does these things. Maybe you've heard the expression, uh, my mom used to say this all the time, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. You know, how was your day at school today? Fine. You know, and, and you know, it's like, that's the right answer, but you don't talk to your mom that way. Right? So, and I actually think that's partially true. It, it is actually what you say. You can say a lot of rotten things. But uh, if you, you can still say the right things and do it in a really off-putting way. This isn't so much about exactly what Jesus is doing, but how he's doing it. Thus far, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen Jesus proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God. We've seen him uh, perform mighty deeds. We've seen him teach in a way that leaves people in absolute awe. Who teaches like this? We've never heard anyone teach like this. What we haven't seen Jesus do is assert his will Unto people. He hasn't forced anyone to do anything. And we, frankly, aren't used to that type of person. We aren't used to the type of person who is powerful on the one hand and humble and gentle on the other hand. It's usually one or the other. In fact, Jesus' own cousin John was confused at one point about who Jesus really was. He wasn't acting like a Messiah should act, he wasn't acting like the rulers of the world. He wasn't bringing judgment on Rome, and he wasn't confronting in a real harsh way the religious leaders. And it kind of makes me, when I was thinking through this, it made me think of kids' costumes. I don't know, bear with me here, maybe this will make any sense, but kids dress up all the time. My kids have a chest, a treasure chest full of play clothes. So whether or not it's Halloween or, or if it's um, a costume party or it's just any random day of the week, they're always dressing up as something. And I know your kids do because I see them do it. And usually they dress up as something like a superhero or uh, even my girls, like today they're some kind of like... Yeah, they kept arresting me. They had this pony and a mask on and kind of like Lone Ranger. I don't think they know what that is. But uh, you, you have a red car and you stole a pizza or something. I don't know. It was crazy. Like, absolutely. Like, where are you getting this? But they kept arresting me and with a lightsaber, which I loved that. Uh, but they, the kids dress up as people who... Like, make an impact in the world. Whether it's a, a princess bossing people around, which Stella loves to do, or, or it's a superhero using their powers for good. Kids have this ideal in their mind, and they, 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 they're game changers when they dress up. But, now think about adult costume parties. I don't mean like adult, but I mean like grown-up costume parties. Um, usually when I've gone to costume parties with adults... We're a little more jaded. We're not idealistic anymore. And almost every costume is kind of ironic or funny. You dress up for a laugh, right? Uh, I dressed up in uh, Never Nudes the other day for an Arrested Development party. Yeah, there's no photos. No, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, but let me ask you this. So you've got the kids who dress up as idealistic power people who are game changers. You've got adults who are usually a little more jaded. We do things ironically or funny. Uh, we're maybe not even convinced you can't change the world anymore. If someone were to go to a costume party dressed up as Jesus, would we consider that superhero game changer or ironic and funny? I almost guarantee you it would be taken as something kind of humorous, something kind of funny. There's something about the way that Jesus does things that we, we almost just marginalize. Like, yeah, he couldn't really get a lot done in our world. It's too tough. You need to have power. 
You need to force your way in order to get things done. I mean, Jesus, after all, died a traitor's death on a cross. Uh, His closest friends were nowhere to be seen after that. Uh, He's humiliated. His disciples left in absolute disillusionment and fear. There's no idealism going on at that point. And yet, it's that same stance, it's that same way of doing things. That same Jesus who was resurrected three days later, breathed Holy Spirit life into his followers such that they're all of a sudden willing to die for this message. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and currently reigns over us. These verses about Jesus withdrawing and healing show us how Jesus does what he does, how Jesus lives. His main mission, you guys, wasn't to go out and defeat the Pharisees in every argument or to zap them with laser beams. His main mission was not to gain a following based on popularity, but to gain disciples willing to to obey him, to give their lives for him. So Jesus is being authentically Jesus. And I think that that, for me, and probably for you because you're sitting here right now, that's what's so attractive about him. You don't sense that he has some secret agenda, that he's going to do a bait and switch with us. That's just really who he is, all the way to the cross and through it again. It's so different than how much of the world works. Think of how politicians work, right? And and this is just a game, right? I'm not saying anything good or bad about politicians, but uh, politicians usually run on a slogan or a campaign. So you might run with, I'll be the president who wins the war on drugs, or I'll be the president who wins the war on terror, or I'll be the education czar, or I'll be the president that fixes the economy. And and we do that, and it's well-meaning, but notice how you put your slogan out there before you've done anything. Vote for me, and then I'll do this stuff. Or even uh, the, the long history uh, of popes is another example. So the pope, when, they, when they're elected, takes on a name. And that name is supposed to evoke the idea or the character with which they're going to do their ministry. So previously we had um, uh, Pope Benedict. And that, that was the truth, the, the pope who is going to uh, adhere to the truth of the gospel and truth of doctrine. And now we have uh, Pope Francis I, his given name, Jorge Mario Bergoglio. He chose his name St. Francis uh, after one who is known for his humility. Is known for his love of creation and God's people. And I certainly hope that this Pope lives up to that name. But the point I'm trying to make is that whether it's politicians or Popes or whoever we are, even what we put on our resumes, right? We're oftentimes trying to earn our titles after we put them out there. Now, Jesus is completely different. If Jesus says anything about himself, it's always in relation to his Father. He's always, even, notice that when Jesus even does mighty deeds or preaches mighty sermons, the people do what? They praise God. That's awesome. There must be a way that he does these amazing things. Like, I, I couldn't be trusted with that kind of power. If I, if, I mean, think about that. If we could do those kinds of amazing things, wouldn't it be real tempting to make it kind of about us and the show? Whenever Jesus did these things, God was the one to get the credit. Jesus' life preaches 
His life preaches. So what do you say about a man who could calm storms and raise the dead and heal the sick? What do you say about a man who could transform five loaves and two fish to feed over 5,000 people? What do you say about a guy like that? What do you say about a man who has all of this power, and yet when he's confronted by people who are conspiring to kill him, doesn't, doesn't zap them, he withdraws, moves on to the next town. What do you say about a guy like that? Matthew is figuring out what to say about him. Matthew looked upon the life of Jesus, the way he lived, and he realized that Jesus was fulfilling what was spoken in the prophet Isaiah. And we get this long quote here in our passage this evening. It's the longest Old Testament quote in all of Matthew's Gospel. And it comes from Isaiah 42, which if you want a little extra nerd information, is one of four of the so-called servant songs in Isaiah. It's the first of the four servant songs. The servant songs are poetic, so they they read almost like a psalm. The poetic prophecies about a promised servant who would perfectly... Be obedient to God. Okay? And if we had time, if I was teaching a class or something, we would have done our homework and read Isaiah 40 and 41 before we get to 42. And you would realize that in context, this servant in Isaiah 42 is intended to be none other than Israel. Israel is supposed to be this group of people, and you'll remember back to... Uh, Genesis 12, where uh, God chooses Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, brother. And I'm going to uh, multiply your descendants. And you are, you're going to be such a blessing uh, that you're to bless the world. I want your descendants to be obedient to me. And through that obedience and blessing, the whole world's going to want to know who your God is and come to know how much He loves us. And that's the intention there. Israel, through Abraham, was supposed to be this servant of God. Through centuries of repeated failures and rebellion and idolatry, God allowed Israel to be taken captive by the Babylonian Empire. And while in captivity, God encouraged them. In Isaiah 40 and 41, we can read how God promises to bring deliverance. And the servant song quoted in Matthew is from Isaiah 42. It's the first of the four, right? And what's shocking about this song is that in Isaiah's context, like I just said, Israel is supposed to be the servant. They are supposed to be the human agents that would accomplish God's will. But to Israel's surprise, and I want to suggest to their horror, not only were they to be rescued, but they were also to share the good news with the Gentiles, the very people who have them in captivity. And don't just, don't just read that as, oh, that's just something that happened in history. We're talking Babylon came, raped, pillaged, forced, marched, hundreds and hundreds of miles, women, children, elderly, died along the way. I mean, th- th- there's some serious hatred going on against Babylon. And then God says, yeah, I'm going to rescue you, and, I, and you, as my servant, I'm going to use you to then share the good news with these Gentiles. Oh, that didn't go over very well. That didn't go over very well at all. And so throughout Isaiah, we see Israel living in continued rebellion, continued distrust against God. 
And there are three other servant songs that come along. And each one becomes less and less about uh, suggestive uh, that Israel is the servant. And more and more suggestive of an ambiguous individual being the servant. And by the time we get to Isaiah 52 and 53, the servant is clearly an unknown person. Now check this out. Through Matthew's Gospel, we've seen Jesus acting as a representative for Israel. So, for example, uh, we're in the Exodus, God brings the people of Israel into the wilderness, and they continue to fail. They even start worshiping an idol. Uh, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and succeeds where Israel has failed. In a way, I think what we're seeing is that Jesus is becoming... What Israel was supposed to be, he's taking it all on in his person. Matthew's showing us that God is faithful to his promise. If Israel could not and would not be obedient, he would not forsake them. In fact, he would send his own servant to do it for them. Enter Jesus. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now think back, where have you heard that before? Jesus' baptism, right? Matthew chapter 3. Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, I will put my Spirit on Him, and He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. At Jesus' baptism, again, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting or resting or landing on Him. Next, in the servant song, we read, He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. This again is about how Jesus ministers. He doesn't go on and pick fights. He doesn't go out on rants in the streets. He doesn't campaign from town to town, kissing babies and doing smear campaigns against against Caesar. He doesn't go viral on YouTube, making a name for himself. That's not how He operates. Jesus is about his father's business. And when you're on the father's business, you run into conflict. So just last week we saw how the Pharisees confronted him in public about his view on the Sabbath. And Jesus gave good answers and challenged their, uh, their assumptions. But when their minds were not changed and they conspired to kill him. I mean, can you imagine that just for a minute? Jesus just walked away. He just walked away. By the way, that would make a horrible movie, wouldn't it? Where your protagonist, you know, with all this awesome superpower comes from God. That's like the anti-Superman. I mean, Superman, you want to to see how that's going to shape up to like a nice showdown where he fights people and stuff. But, But Jesus doesn't do that. He withdraws. It's not his way. Jesus doesn't need to prove himself because he's playing for an audience of one. He only cares about pleasing the Father. You know, unlike other revolutionaries who recruit the bravest and the brightest and the most capable people, Jesus makes friends with the weak, with the powerless, with those who really can't contribute a whole lot to, uh, to a revolution. It meets right up with this Part in Isaiah 42, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Reeds are symbolic of weakness. If you think back to uh, uh, when John the Baptist, we were talking about him, and 
And the crowds were confused. And he says, who did you guys go out to see anyway? A reed shaken in the wind, like a sign of weakness. He goes, no, you went out to see a prophet. That crazy hairy prophet who eats bugs, John the Baptist. So that's about as opposite as you can get from weak. So reed uh, and a bruised and broken weed, just a sign of weakness. A battered, bruised reed. If you just brush up against it, it falls and breaks. A smoldering wick just needs wet fingertips and it's gone. It doesn't need much. You know, if you're starting a revolution, if you want to be a successful Messiah, you don't need broken reed people and you don't need smoldering wick people. You need strong people, people who can get get stuff done. Maybe good warriors, a few administrators. But Jesus doesn't act that way. He's gentle and patient and humble. He has time. He has time for you. That's good news. I don't know. I, I, sometimes I feel like there's times in my life when the world's just passing me by. Other relationships are passing me by. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not up enough on everything that's going on. You ever feel? That's really good news. That Jesus has patience for you. If Jesus is filled with the Spirit of God, then He's authentically living as God's agent. Through Jesus, we get a view then of God's character. And what does that tell us? It tells us that when your faith is lacking, He won't give up on you even when you feel like giving up on Him. Uh, When you feel overwhelmed and unable to offer anything, you are blessed as one who is poor in spirit. It tells us that when you're paralyzed by grief, there will be rejoicing for you in Christ who will sum up all things in Himself. He doesn't have to be... uh, He doesn't have that neurotic need that so many have for you just to get over your grief. He doesn't have that anxious presence like, okay, you should be better now. Jesus doesn't grow tired of your mourning, of your depression, He is in it with you. The the scene of the one who will not break off a battered reed, who won't snuff out a smoldering wick, it tells me that when we feel inadequate, impotent in life, without value to the world, um, He's not going to leave you or forsake you. When you're humble... And your stance toward an arrogant world. Blessed are you, for you shall inherit the earth. Hear me though. Don't mistake Jesus' kindness and patience and humility for weakness. Don't ever do that. It takes infinitely more strength to live like Jesus did than asserting our will where we have power. It takes someone who's living authentically as a child of God to choose obedience rather than self-preservation, doesn't it? To choose sacrifice over self-glory. To know, to honestly know that to die to self is the only way to new life. Jesus has this stance as he leads justice to victory. God's Justice is not just punishment for things done wrong. His justice, mishpat, it's like 
is similar to that word shalom we talk about all the time. His justice is right relatedness, right relatedness with each other and right relatedness with God and our world. Jesus will lead justice to victory, meaning He will bring the kingdom of God. He's not setting up His own throne. He's not about using violence to accomplish His mission. Jesus takes the violence of the world. He absorbs it in Himself on the cross. Jesus is the servant of God. He's made a way for you and for me to be rescued, forgiven. He's invited us. His invitation is standing. Come participate with me in the life of the Father, in the life of the Son, in the life of the Spirit, in loving your neighbor as yourself. Now something really interesting if you have your Bibles uh, is to look at the end of this quote in Matthew's Gospel. We see uh, Isaiah 42.4. The original text from the Hebrew says, uh, The coastlands, or the Gentiles, will wait or will hope in His law. Okay, that's what the original text says. Uh, that the Gentiles will hope or wait in His law. But Matthew's version says something different. It says, they will hope in the servant's name. So they've replaced law with name. Do you remember Jesus just a couple weeks back when we were in Matthew 11? He said this, Take my yoke or my law, my way upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is not giving a new law. He's fulfilling the law. He now calls upon us to hope in His name, to hope in His character, to hope in His person, to hope in His power, to hope in His way. It's not this obscure set of, of doctrines. or It's not about that. It's about putting our hope, our, our weight, our trust in a person. If you're a bruised reed or a smoldering wick today, this is very good news. Very good news, because we've seen what his character is like. He's not going to break you off and move on to some, somebody better, somebody who can do more for him. He's not going to put you out even if you're barely alive. That would be actually the end to a real good sermon, and some of you might be wishing I would stop right there, but I can't, <laughs> because there, there's more good news to this. It's not just about his gentleness and what he offers us, okay? And here's the logic in a nutshell. Israel was to be God's obedient servant. Right? We covered that. They rebelled. They did not act as the servant. So God sent His only Son to be the servant. To vicariously accomplish what Israel failed to do in His person. But there's more. God always chooses to act through people. In fact, didn't He become one in Jesus? Right? So He acts through people. But Jesus didn't act alone, did he? First, he could have gone to the cross all by himself. He could have taught wonderful sermons by himself. But what did he do? He gathered people to himself. How many disciples did he have? How many disciples? Twelve, yes. How many tribes of Israel? Ah, okay, something's going on here. Jesus is not only fulfilling the role of the servant, he's gathering a new people of God to himself. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, child, people of all races, cultures. 
He's breaking down those barriers. He's calling a new people of God to Himself. Church, that means that we are part of this new people of God in Christ. In Isaiah 42, in this quote, we've seen what happens when somebody lives authentically as made in the image of God. So what would it look like then for you and I to live authentically as disciples of Jesus, as people of the Holy Spirit? Oh, it means starting with the fact that you and I are servants. Literally, you know that word in Greek where it says, uh, my servant whom I beloved? It's pious. That's, that's the Greek word for child. Child, you are my beloved child whom God has chosen. This is, you guys, this is so much better than mere forgiveness. Than, oh, I couldn't do it, so somebody came and did it for me. It's, in, it's inviting you and me into a new life, into a new way of being, into being what we were always created to be. Part of the Spirit's ministry is to remind you and I that deep down we are adopted into His family. Friends, you, we need to get it. Like, we need to know this right now that you... And me, we are God's beloved children. I, guys, especially, isn't that just bouncing off your head like cerebral does not compute? And this is where we need the miracle of the Spirit, because I basically am preaching the same thing every week as we work through Matthew. And I'm still, I feel like every week, oh, I get it. No, I don't get it. Like, do we really get that you and me were beloved children of the living God? We are God's inheritance, His handiwork. That's who you authentically are. Oh. <laughs> I, I, Paul understands this. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. That means we're adopted into that family. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner person, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. I'm going to say that again. Did you hear that? That you would be filled up, me too, with all the fullness of God. How's that going to happen? Well, let me tell you. Now to Him who is able to do far more, abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. I think Paul gets it. Paul understands what's going on here. You know, once we begin to receive the fact that authenticity means that you and I are God's beloved, only then are we going to feel like we can start to open up and be real about who we actually are right now. You know, that's why one of our core values as a church is authenticity. Like being able to say in a group or in public or with your friends here at church, Hey, I'm really broken, and I'm broken in these areas. 
authenticity and acceptance. That's not some cop-out for just staying sinful all the time. That, we're trying to create a culture where we can be honest and real with each other so that then we can move forward. We're not going to move forward if we're constantly living a lie with these fake masks on that everything's okay. The reality is that through Christ, He's put His Spirit in us. And when we begin to follow the Spirit and allow the Spirit to work in us, we become wounded healers, not just wounded anymore. We're to proclaim justice and His good intentions for a good and yet fallen world. We become people who have compassion on others and their imperfections. We don't judge. Why? Because we've freely received. And so we're called to freely give. And it's not just what we say, but it's how we say it. As the people of God, we, we don't pick fights. And we don't look for quarrels, right? We don't hopefully have antagonistic blogs where we're just trying to poke people who think differently than we do. We debate, yes. We think. You're darn right we think. We search the scriptures. Yes, yes, all of those things. But don't forget, Jesus sends us out as sheep among wolves. We're to be innocent as doves, crafty and wise as serpents. We don't shout in people's faces. And I dare say we shouldn't be known as a church more for what we're against than what we're for. Right? And of any group of people, our church should be places of hospitality. Not just the well put together but for the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks. How will, how will people come to know this goodness of God if not through His body, through His people, through His hands and His feet and His mouth? That's us. I'm going to transition now into our prayers for healing time. 